Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, as you know, we're on a weekly schedule. Our press conferences vary with the case counts, and so we're having high case counts, and we're continuing to go up. But uh, we want to walk through updates on vaccination, on uh, what's going on with kids, because you had a lot of questions about that last week. And we're going to talk a little bit more about antibody treatment and hospital status and, and things like that today. So uh, I think you're going to be seeing the usual suspects or the usual crew here for the near future, myself and Deputy Secretary Laura Parahone and our state epidemiologist, Christine Ross. And with that, I'm just going to turn it over to Laura to give us an update on our vaccination progress. Laura. Great. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. And uh, yes, I'll be sharing um, the vaccine update today. So thanks to all of you in New Mexico, 77.6% uh, of New Mexicans have received at least a first dose, which is amazing. 67.7% um, of New Mexicans 18 and over are fully vaccinated. And coming soon, we're gonna be working on dashboard updates to reflect the additional doses that are being given. Um, if you can see here on the right side, um, thank you, Brianna, for putting all the percentages of vaccinations across the state. And you can see the lighter colored is where you have less vaccination, and then the darker colored are where you have a higher amount of vaccination. Next slide. So one of the exciting things is that I think we did get a question that, you know, unfortunately, COVID has disproportionately affected people who are living in poverty. Um, there's a index called the Social Vulnerability Index, which is a group of 15 indicators that include poverty, transportation, and crowded housing. Uh, one is the highest level of social vulnerability, and then point one is the least social vulnerable areas. If you can see here in New Mexico, actually the higher social vulnerability areas have a higher vaccination rate. And that's thanks to all of you who've been helping out with vaccinations, um, have been really focusing on areas of high social vulnerability. So New Mexico, if you're higher social vulnerability, you actually have a higher rate of vaccine uptake. And Laura, I just want to mention we've gotten a question from Julia Goldberg about this mm -hmm. phenomenon and whether we were tracking vaccination by areas of social vulnerability. Uh, these are large uh, county level. It's possible to actually do it by zip code, but it would be really tough to read the graph if we had that many names and zip codes. Thanks. No, thanks so much for clarifying that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Next slide. So in terms of vaccines, we got a lot of questions about how are we doing for our kids. So uh, you can see here that um, the vaccinations among young people uh, for 12 to 15 year olds, we're at about 40.7% of the vac uh, population vaccinated. And for 16 to 17 years old, we're at 48.5. So that's pretty good. Uh, if you look at how we're doing, of course, we can do better, but that's where we're at right now for kids. Uh, next slide. Uh, you can see our vaccine progress for ages uh, 16 to 17 year olds. Here you can see when New Mexico opened um, phase two distribution, allowing all people 16 and over to get vaccinated. So you can see that that steadily climbed and continues to climb. So thank you for everyone getting their kids vaccinated. Um, 
However, we just want to point something out, which is an equity issue that our team has been working really hard on and, you know, also asking community members to, to work on this, community organizations. But you can see that for 16 to 17 year olds receiving their first dose, uh, people who are Hispanic or Latino you um, has the, the lowest rate of vaccination here. And then you can see um, Black or African-American has the next lowest um, at 50%, and then um, white populations at a little bit over 60%. Um, our American Indian are doing um, populations are doing great at over 75%. And then Asian Pacific Islander at about almost 100% here for 16 to 17 year olds. So really, you know, wanting to point out that although we have a higher vaccination rate overall, we also have to care and look at, you know, some um, other groups that aren't being vaccinated. Next slide. Um, this is for 12 to 15 year olds. So you see the same thing when we opened up in May for 12 to 15 year olds, a lot of people got vaccinated and steadily increasing um, both the percent who are fully vaccinated and those receiving one dose. But once again, you can see the same trend of certain populations not being vaccinated as much and um, especially really marked um, for Hispanic Latino populations and African American populations. So um, what we think we might be seeing here is that some parents, maybe they are willing to get vaccinated themselves, but they have concerns about their children getting vaccinated. And so we really want to address people's common, um, you know, the common misinformation that's out there or concerns that parents might have in getting their children vaccinated. Because um, as you'll see in the next slides that um, Dr. Christine Ross will be sharing, people who are unvaccinated are the people who are getting COVID and kids who get COVID, they can get really, really sick. So next slide. Um, so here's some common concerns and questions about the COVID-19 vaccine for children. So um, COVID vaccines are actually really safe for children. Uh, the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds on uh, May 10th. Um, the Pfizer vaccine was studied in more than 2,200 children. And actually the clinical trial data showed the vaccine to be extremely safe and effective. They compared children who didn't get the vaccine against children who did get the vaccine and children who were vaccinated did not like in this study, none of them got COVID while the children who weren't vaccinated did get COVID. Um, some people were, are wondering about why the approval for 12 to 15 year olds take longer. And that's because there are more safety um, measures taken for uh, studies in children. So next slide. Uh, COVID vaccines also do not affect um, children's DNA or anybody's DNA for that matter. Um, none of the COVID-19 vaccines alter or interact with DNA. The vaccines actually work by delivering instructions to our cells to start building protection against the virus, but does not affect the DNA. Next slide. Um, another question we've gotten a lot is, do uh, vaccines affect children's future fertility? And they, um, so what we have found um, from the CDC is that there's no evidence that vaccines affect either fertility in children or adults. Um, in recent in vitro fertilization studies, these are studies um, for you know, fertility treatments, researchers actually compared success rates among three groups of women. 
So basically antibodies from those who have been vaccinated against COVID-19, um, those who have had recent infection, and then um, no antibodies from either having a recent infection. And the study found no difference in the pregnancy success rates among all these groups. So that's awesome. Um, you know, there's really no evidence um, for children being affected in their future fertility or current fertility for adults for that matter. Okay, next slide. Um, a lot of people are concerned that, well, my child already had a COVID, had COVID-19, do they need to get a vaccine? And the answer is yes, because experts really don't know how long someone is protected from getting COVID after the infection. Um, it is possible, it, even though it's very rare to get infected again with COVID, even after you recover. And so um, a lot of people also ask, well, okay, so my kid got COVID, how soon can they get vaccinated? They can get vaccinated 10 days after get, they get the infection. So, um, so yeah, your kids should still get the vaccine if they had COVID. Next slide. Um, another question is, is that, should I be worried about myocarditis or pericarditis in my child after a vaccine? Um, just so for people who haven't heard about this, um, myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle, and then pericarditis is an inflammation of the lining of the heart. It's an extremely rare side effects, and um, they've done a lot of studies on this, and leading doctors, nurses, and experts from um, the uh, ACIP strongly agree that the vaccine is safe for children. And just something I want to point out as a mom, obviously as a mom, I was worried about this too. And um, myocarditis and pericarditis is actually more common if you get COVID-19, and the risk to the heart are much more severe. So basically, you know, you're more likely to get that if you're not vaccinated. And those kids who did get, um, the very few who got this from um, after they got the vaccine, it was really mild. And basically you just do symptomatic treatment. You just take like ibuprofen and Advil and that's how you treat it um, for these mild cases. So next slide. Um, a lot of parents are worried about side effects. So like, should I be worried about side effects? And really uh, most people uh, don't experience any side effects after the vaccine, um, but we don't also don't wanna tell people like, oh, there's no side effects. It's really, there are some common side effects that really last only one to two days after the vaccine. So uh, most people, about 85% of people get like some a sore arm where you got the shot. That's what I got, some pain, redness or swelling. Um, some people, not as much, about 15 to 20% of people will feel like tired, headache, muscle pain, chills, fever, or nausea. Um, but it's very mild most of the time and it doesn't last, but like I said, more than one to two days. And um, yeah, and then some people say with the second dose, it's a little bit worse. So, um, so you can just expect that, let your kids know that. I think that's really important to kind of let your kids know what to expect. Um, if you do get side effects, you know, um, you can reduce pain or discomfort by just applying a clean cold towel or wet washcloth over the area, use or exercise your arm, drink a lot of fluids before you go to get the vaccine. Um, to reduce discomfort from fever, like I said, drink plenty of fluids, undress um, lightly, and then, you know, ask your provider or, or um, someone you trust about taking um, medicine like ibuprofen or acetaminophen over the counter for the discomfort. Next slide. Um, another question we get is, can um, my child get COVID vaccines while getting other childhood vaccines? Because like, you don't want to be driving twice to get your kid vaccine. And the answer is yes, you can get 
the COVID-19 vaccines and other vaccines during the exact same visit. Um, a lot of the new data shows that our bodies develop additional protection after getting vaccinated. Um, and the side effects are really the same when given alone or together. So really get your kids vaccinated. Um, it's really important. Um, next slide. Um, uh, the CDC also found that fewer child vaccines were given during the COVID pandemic. So really just reminder to all the parents out there, uh, get your kids vaccinated, protect your kids. When we protect our kids, we can also protect them from getting a bad COVID side effect, but also the rest of the family as well. Next slide. Um, we had another question, which was like, uh, what is the difference between additional doses and booster doses? So a lot of people are talking about the third dose, who gets it? So we just wanna make sure we wanna kind of call it the additional dose. Um, the purpose of that additional dose or the third dose is to help build an effective immune response against severe infection and death for people who are immune compromised. Those are people who didn't really mount a good response to the vaccine. So we're giving them a third dose to help them mount that good response. Um, when can these people get a shot? So if you're immune compromised, you can get a shot at least 28 days after your second shot. And then what's the difference between that and the booster dose? So the booster dose purpose is really to boost immunity from what's normal with many vaccines is that you get waning antibodies from the vaccine. So you need to boost the immunity. Um, who qualifies? No one yet qualifies for that, that booster dose. And then when can I get that shot? We're still awaiting final data um, and recommendations from the CDC later this month. And as soon as we have it, we'll let you know um, what to do next. So thank you so much uh, for letting me share this update on vaccines. And I'm gonna turn this over to my amazing colleague, Dr. Christine Ross. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Dr. Pettahon. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today. Um, as always, though, I wish I had better better news to share. Um, I'm going to be sharing uh, some of our epi data. Um, I think I have about seven or eight slides. So this is um, uh, an epi curve or, or what we call an epi curve when we plot the new cases by time or by date. And then you can see the number of cases, which is on the Y axis, the X axis or that bottom line is time. And so the big mountains, the big mountain in the middle represents the winter surge of cases that we had. And over to the right, you can see this surge that we're in uh, now. Um, we hope uh, that we are seeing the semblance or the beginning of a possible plateau, though it's too early to say that uh, for sure now, but we have seen a deceleration in the number of, of new cases. Um, but again, uh, it, it's too early to say, uh, and we hope that we'll have more information uh, next week. So next slide. 
So this is slide from LANL. So LANL uses the state's EPI data and they, they use this to make mathematical models or projections uh, on the number of cases, um, hospitalizations, deaths. And, and this helps us um, at the state to aid, it aids us in our planning and management of the impact of the pandemic on uh, New Mexico. So they've projected that daily cases um, should hopefully peak soon. And again, this uh, coincides what we're seeing in our epi data, which I just shared in the slide above. Um, but we all need to continue doing our part um, with all of the, the mitigation measures. So masking indoors, um, avoiding crowds, every eligible person, please get out and get a vaccine, uh, et cetera. The graph is actually projecting what we might see with hospitalizations. And if you look there on, on the x-axis or, or time, which is plotted out on the bottom line there, um, they're projecting that we could possibly uh, reach um, the need for 770 beds uh, or over 700 beds could be needed by COVID patients alone by next week. So this is really, really important information. And we've been using this information to try to plan accordingly um, to be able to manage uh, this influx or volume of patients uh, um, as best that we can. So Secretary Scrace will be talking more about hospitalizations um, next. So next slide. So when we look at um, what's happening in the state, we look at uh, geographically where we see uh, different case rates, uh, test percent positivity, and we uh, put this in a report called Levels of Community Transmission, which is posted online. Um, the information you see on this slide is actually an epi curve, or again, it's the, the plot of cases that we see over time, and this is by region. Uh, the left is the northwest region, and the right is the southeast region. And what you can see here is, is a very striking difference in the number of cases. Um, we're currently experiencing quite a surge of cases in the southeast and what's interesting here is that it correlates what we see is this pattern or relationship between highest uh, case rates or burden of infections being in areas where we have lowest uh, vaccination coverage. So you see the box on the left there is indicating um, that we have over 66% of persons 18 and over fully vaccinated in the Northwest as compared to 45 percent uh, 18 and over fully vaccinated in the southeast. So next slide. And so this is some of the data that we shared last week. This is our surveillance data where we look at cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, and we look at this by vaccination status. What you see here is um, data that encompasses the previous four-week period. And really the take-home message is, is that it, the majority uh, that, that we see, uh, again, of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are among persons who are unvaccinated. Uh, next slide. 
And this is uh, data that we're sharing in response to questions that we've received over what do we see over time or what does the trend look like over time? And um, again, I think for the sake of time, I'm just going to go straight to the take home message, which is that uh, the majority of infections that we're seeing um, is among unvaccinated individuals. And, and this is what's driving uh, this current surge of cases that we're seeing um, in addition to uh, this highly infectious Delta variant uh, that we're dealing with. Uh, next slide. I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, who do we see uh, getting infected. So we talked a little bit about geography, and I referred you to our uh, county level report, which is posted online. And then this is in reference uh, to uh, demographics. And so I just want to point out that case rates, uh, again, this is the mountain. The mountain in the middle is the winter surge, and then off to the right is what we're seeing now. And you can see the case rates have increased among all age groups. Um, but what we're seeing uh, currently is the highest case rates among five to 17 year olds and also 18 to 34 year olds. And most uh, critically, we know that um, uh, this includes uh, uh, many children who are not eligible for vaccination right now. So it's really important that everyone around them, everyone that's eligible for vaccination uh, seeks out a vaccination. Okay, next slide. And again, just diving into this a little bit more, we wanted to talk about uh, cases among school-aged children. And so the first graph that you see here is zero to four-year-olds, and you can see that uptick there. But overall, zero to four-year-olds make up a very small proportion of, of our cases. Uh, but we wanna show you this trend, which is this uptick. And then the, the graph uh, below the zero to four-year-olds is five, five to 17-year-olds. And, and, and you can see this very dramatic uh, uptick uh, in cases that we're seeing amongst that age group. And then over to the right, we just look at uh, the proportion of cases that are um, are among uh, these different age groups. And I just want to draw your attention to the to the yellow line. And you can see that our five to 17 year old uh, line there is growing. So they're becoming a growing uh, percentage or proportion of our, our total cases, though older age groups um, uh, still still make up the predominance of our cases. And you can see the pink is 35 to 64 year old and the blue is 18 to 34. I want to mention that that um, given the, the very high levels of community transmission of this virus that we're seeing currently in New Mexico, it's really difficult to discern um, where um, or to pin down one specific exposure uh, that led to a specific infection. So in other words, children have multiple possible exposure events that can happen uh, in the community, uh, but could also have happened in school. And we know that in school, um, we are um, bringing uh, large numbers of unvaccinated 
individuals together in a close environment. So we we want to emphasize the importance of mitigation measures, in, in, how important, uh, critically important, uh, layering uh, different mitigation measures in school is. I also want to mention that we're working closely with our our. Uh, public education department, we wanna uh, work on collecting better data to help us discern school associated cases uh, amongst children versus uh, kids who, who are getting infected outside uh, of the, the school environment. So next slide. And we wanted to mention test percent positivity um, and how the fact that we're seeing quite high uh, numbers among school age children. So you can see that this is um, broken down by age and the cumulative test positivity is over at the right. And the take home message for me is I, I, I really hope we can see more testing um, of these of these age groups um, because there's uh, clearly uh, more uh, infections that we're, we're not uh, detecting at, at this time. Uh, testing is extremely uh, uh, important tool because it helps us uh, quickly, uh, it quickly leads to isolation of infected people and then quarantine of, of contact. So the key is we want to stop onward transmission of this really highly infectious virus. So I think the next slide is my last slide. And um, I wanted to share this publication and just again to emphasize that we're really trying to be uh, careful in, in our school settings and, and mitigate uh, the, the risk that we find there uh, when we're bringing uh, kids together. And so this is a study, it's an outbreak uh, investigation from Marin, uh, California. And what they showed here um, was it, it was an elementary school, and I think 23 out of uh, 25 of the teachers uh, were vaccinated. They had also had other mitigation measures in place, uh, such as uh, physical distancing, masking, et cetera. But unfortunately, the teacher, um, uh, which is often common, thought that she maybe had, she or he had allergies, uh, thought that some of the symptoms that they started to experience were not related to COVID. So they continued coming to school at teaching. Uh, while in the classroom, um, there was intermittent use uh, of, ma of a mask by, by this uh, teacher. Two days later, um, uh, a test showed up uh, or test result was available, which showed that indeed uh, the person had COVID. Uh, at that point in time, there were, were the, the whole classroom was exposed and 12 out of the 24 kids in that classroom ended up uh, testing positive uh, for COVID. And so this this just sort of exemplifies uh, the importance of of. Um, uh, vaccinating uh, uh, all eligible adults, uh, uh, in including teachers, so that we can protect uh, the population that is not eligible for vaccination. And also just the importance of uh, the need to, to mask properly and, and to follow all other uh, uh, mitigation measures in schools that we know work. Um, I, I do want to point out uh, that there weren't any associated hospitalizations and deaths. And again, uh, children are, are quite resilient and tend to do uh, fairly, fairly well as compared to adults. So I think I'll end there and I'll turn it over to Secretary Scrace now. Uh, thanks very much, Christine. And also thanks, Laura, for the excellent information today. I'm going to do an update on hospitalizations and uh, some news on deaths as well. 
Um, you know, the question came up before, are we seeing a rise in hospitalizations in New Mexico children? I just saw something on the news this morning about uh, increased hospitalization rates among children across the country. But those two lines on the bottom, the Halloween colors of orange and black there are pretty flat with just a very small zero, one or two kids in the hospital at any given time. So we are not seeing that rise and we're not sure why we're not seeing that rise yet. It could be that we have a better than average vaccination rate. So the vaccinated people in the state are providing more protection for young people who don't have the opportunity to be vaccinated yet. I like to think that that's uh, uh, one of the things we're doing when we all get vaccinated. But so far, with respect to kids, and we're focusing on kids today, we're not seeing that uptick in hospitalizations. Next slide, please, Brianna. However, we still are quite tight in terms of hospitals. This is our system capacity that hospitals, uh, our hub network evaluates themselves every week, right on that line between our highest level of contingency and crisis standards of care. Um, and we evaluate this multiple times during the week. We do the measurement scale once a week on Tuesdays, and we're still very, very close, as you can see here, right on the line between orange and red. And uh, our transfer center continues to run, continues to move people around the state to try to get people into whatever hospital bed is open. I believe the next slide will show <clears throat> where those open hospital beds are. There are 30 total ICU beds um, as of yesterday morning. Most of those again get filled during the day, but hopefully some people move to a lower level of care to make room. 39 beds available uh, around the state. Those inserts in the lower right on both uh, give you a bigger a sort of blow up of the Albuquerque metro area. And if you're familiar with those facilities, you can figure out which ones are which but still very, very tight when it comes to hospitalizations in the state. A uh, little bit of room down in Las Cruces, a very, very full in the Albuquerque metro area. And then just that one uh, hospital, the UNM hospital out in Sandoval uh, County, Sandoval Regional Medical Center uh, recently opened up some IU, ICU beds. Still very, very tight. Keep in mind that these, we have already have all of the actual beds full. And so these are stretch beds where we've converted areas and we still have some room there, which is good, but very, very tight statewide. Next slide, please. Uh, and then unfortunately, I think we all know that hospitalizations follow, uh, you know, the case counts by a couple of weeks and that's that's a problem too. Christine showed you that hospitalization projection. Even though we might might be seeing the beginning of leveling off of cases, it's not so much cases are coming down, but that rate of increase is declining. It's decelerating, if you will. Um, we are still, uh, you know, going to have a couple really rough weeks for hospitals, even if things do turn around with cases. And as usual, about six weeks after cases start going up deaths uh, also start going up. We had 26 a week before last. There is a lag. We do get uh, deaths reported later on, sometimes from out of state, um, sometimes 
Uh, the medical examiner is about doing an evaluation, but we're still uh, a pace with keeping up uh, with entering them all into the system. And we don't enter them by the day that we got them. We enter them by the date of death. So you'll see some, some of this being backfilled and we'll probably show this curve for another four weeks or five or six weeks. Um, and you'll see these numbers change from week to week as we get uh, further information in. You know, one death is too many deaths. I think those of you who have been following the regular reports know they were now seeing three or four uh, some days and, and hopefully, uh, you know, the projections are that could go up to six or 10 or as high as 15, but hopefully we will see that level off again soon. Next slide, please. I wanted to take a little bit more time to talk about treatment today. It's kind of funny because a friend of mine just texted me that she had uh, just gotten COVID and she has a couple of risk factors. And I was just texting her back that she really needed to call her system and, and get antibody treatment. And so on the next slide, you can see that um, the monoclonal antibody treatments have been in place for many, many years for cancers, autoimmune diseases, uh, even dermatologic conditions. And what happens is our body makes these antibodies uh, to fight infection. And those antibodies, as you can see in the diagram, those green sort of uh, three-leaf clover sorts of things are attaching over there on the right to the uh, COVID virus. And the more of those little red bumps on the virus the antibodies can block, the less likely that virus is to attach to a human cell and get inside the cell. So the idea with the monoclonal antibody treatment is you get, you get a hold of all of the coronavirus in the bloodstream and attach these, these manufactured antibodies to the virus so it diminishes the seriousness of infection. And I've said this a million times, and you're probably sick of it, but remember that in people over 65, people who are obese, who also have symptoms or symptoms plus any risk factor, the risk of hospitalization can drop by as much as 75%. So for every four people uh, who have symptoms plus risk factors who get the monoclonal antibody treatment, three people who otherwise would have been admitted uh, would, would be kept out of the hospital. Uh, and so, uh, the key is who otherwise would have been admitted because the hospitalization rate runs about 8%. Nonetheless, it's worth getting the treatment. I would certainly get it if I got COVID and, uh, and now there's a new way to get the antibody treatment where you don't have to have an IV. They can just give you an injection and it's absorbed and, and treats the virus as well. And so we're working on expanding that throughout the state as well. On the next slide, you can see uh, an antiviral agent, remdesivir, on the left, and that use in hospitals, and that's for moderately ill people, or in the hospitals, gone up quite a bit. And, uh, and then on the right, a couple different kinds of monoclonal antibodies, although mostly we're using Regeneron, and I just saw the data from this week. It just came through like 10 minutes ago, and uh, we're up even higher, which is good but still would love to see more people treated. These are weekly numbers, not daily numbers. You really should think about getting treatment if it turns out that you are infected with COVID, you have symptoms, you're obese or over 64, 
or have another risk factor for serious coronavirus disease. Next slide, please. Uh, I wanted to show you something that we've been thinking about a little bit. On the left, you can see the slide that Brianna so patiently put all the statistics in for each county on the percent vaccination rate. But remember that it's not just the percentage vaccination rate, it's really the number of unvaccinated people. Uh, the more unvaccinated people you have, the more opportunities the virus has to spread from place to place. So really we have more unvaccinated people in Bernalillo where things are, we're still seeing a fair number of cases, but reasonably under control right now than we do in all of the southeastern part of the state when you add those counties together. Doña Ana County is next, then Sandoval, then San Juan. And so uh, we still really want to encourage people in Bernalillo County and of course throughout the entire state to get vaccinated. It's the best way to prevent serious illness, hospitalization and death, but it also helps to prevent the spread of coronavirus in the state. Uh, next slide is, I wanna talk a little bit about testing today too. We've had some calls from people who've had trouble getting testing or want testing or wanna know more about who's doing the testing and some reporters in that list as well. So we've got some additional data today for you that I don't think you've seen before. This is our test positivity rate. It was going up, uh, as you can see, above our new target of 7.5 for the past month or so. And now it's starting to trend down and really just hugging that 7.5 line. It was 7.6 yesterday over a seven day period of time. Usually that test positivity coming down is one of the early warning signs that we might be starting to flatten the curve. Particularly worrisome though is the, and I didn't know this uh, until today, the high test positivity rate amongst kids, which means not enough children are being tested. And we really need to, this is a, a shout out or a call out to all parents watching today. You know, those symptoms of what you think might be allergies or just a runny nose or a mild cough, you really should have your child tested uh, because at least during a pandemic, the chances of it being COVID are pretty high. Next slide, please. Um, so here are all the labs in the state, I think not in any particular order. Um, and the two in-state labs are in the middle there, SLD and Tricor. And you can see they're doing pretty well uh, between the two of them. They're doing exactly 20% of all the testing in the state. Uh, go back please, Brianna. And they're, Turnaround time is a little more than a day, about one day and six hours from when the, that swab is obtained. Uh, Curative, another big testing operation that's really helped out New Mexico. You can see uh, just in the past week, did over a quarter of all the testing and uh, their turnaround is a little less than three days. Remember they have to FedEx theirs out or UPS them out and uh, in any case, they're, uh, uh, but they're still, uh, given the fact they have to ship out a good option, Vault also, uh, you can see there uh, another fairly high percent. This is the one you can do at home. They'll ship you the tube. You can just drop it off right at the UPS. That has to be shipped as well. Uh, and we're actually recommending, and I think you'll see this in a coming slide, that if you're one of those folks that has to get tested once a week because of your work or or uh, you worked in a congregate setting or 
because you uh, are unvaccinated and it's required in your work. We recommend curative and vault as good options, and that leaves more room for the other testing sites. LabCorp, Quest, two other big uh, labs, pathology consultants, also a New Mexico lab in Roswell has done a lot of our testing as well, and so uh, and so on and so forth. Someone asked what other was, and other consists of about 200 other places like doctor's offices, some hospitals that independently run the tests. And so that's the sum of all of those tests. And you can see it's uh, almost 30% of all testing is done in other smaller labs. We do track and trend, turnaround time. If it's going up, we give folks a call and, and encourage them to get that time uh, lowered. Next slide, please. Uh, so kids and adults, please get tested for COVID. If you have COVID-19 symptoms, which we've listed for you here, remembering in kids, gastrointestinal symptoms more common than in adults. So just even a tummy ache, uh, believe it or not, in a child who doesn't normally have that, it's a good idea to get a COVID test. If you're unvaccinated and you live and work in a high-risk congregate setting, you're probably uh, already required to do these, at least the three listed there, as well as uh, uh, in, in some other facilities. Now long-term care actually requires everyone uh, to be vaccinated. If you don't have symptoms, we're in close contact with someone, and this has changed. So even if you're vaccinated now, if you've had really close contact, we really encourage you to get a test as well. And usually the best time is about five days after the contact period. And lastly, if you're a patient that's scheduled for a procedure, although there are not a lot of elective procedures going on in the state right now, uh, you may requ be required to have a test before you have a major surgery. And that's really for your protection and also for the protection of your surgical team. Next slide. <clears throat> we have been getting calls from folks saying, hey, I'm having a really hard time getting a test set up. Can you, can you help me? And um, remember that all you really need is uh, a computer or a phone to do this. And you type in findatestnm.org. And what I'm gonna do here is share my screen. And what I did was I clicked on that link. And uh, can you guys see the my screen here now? Looks good. Okay, great. And so what I, I can, let's just say, I'm, I wanna get a test. I can just type, I live in Placidas. I can type my zip code in there. Uh, and, you know, I can, I can filter by a given city. I'll just look. I want something open today. And, and, uh, and here you can see vault. I can just do it at home. So if I'm not in a hurry, uh, you know, if I'm just doing screening testing, a great option for me. A couple, one in Santa Fe I could drive up to. Uh, another one uh, a little further away because I asked for all cities. Uh, I could go down to Albuquerque, uh, Las Vegas. But let's just say I, I decided I want to get an in-person test and I don't want to drive that far. Let me, let me just put in Bernalillo, which is right near my house. I know there's not a testing site in Placidas. And, Here's a curative site just down the road from me. 
I could go. Uh, they're open until four. So uh, I still have a little bit of time if I wanted to do it after the uh, press conference. But as you can see, uh, you can go in. And then if you want to go ahead and schedule the test, it depends. There's a link here. So I could just go to the curative website and fill out and book now and fill out a, uh, a, a location. So I'm going to now stop sharing my screen and uh, go back to you, Brianna. But I just want to show you how uh, quickly it, that could be done. And if you can't do it yourself, give us a call. We're happy to help. But it is a fairly rapid process to find a place. And I did it on the computer today. I've done it on my phone as well. Okay, next slide. And then last, I just want to mention too, not let, not next slide. Um, we already talked about, we suggest vaulting curative. If you're just getting surveillance testing, you could do it. You know, you need it once a week and it's due on Friday. You could do it, you know, every uh, Friday for the next week or Monday. And usually have your test results back. So uh, vault you can do at home, curative you can do at a site near you if there is one. And then also for people with symptoms, there's that other category. There's an awful lot of places around uh, the state and even pharmacies do the testing. And even now some reasonably reliable uh, are uh, reasonably reliable over the counter tests are available if you want to do that. Uh, if you're having symptoms or been exposed. If, if, if the test is negative and symptoms persist, you may want to get a PCR test, however. Okay, next slide. I think we're on the home stretch. Uh, you know, we've been showing a slide every week of um, somebody who, you know, actually died or became severely ill. Uh, and this is an unvaccinated Californian nurse uh, who you can see on the right. Uh, and she and her husband, you can see on the left, upper left there, were both admitted to the hospital, uh, you know, just a few days apart in August. And, uh, and, and uh, the nurse, Davy, on the right died. And uh, she hadn't been vaccinated. She was concerned about her pregnancy and getting the vaccination. Uh, the baby was delivered. Uh, her husband is in, still in critical condition, and her brother-in-law, uh, Davy's sister, just said, you, you know, about, um, you know, about um, Davy's wife. He was trying to breathe, and I said, if anyone is not vaccinated, I suggest you do so now. And so, don't let this be you. There, you know, this current surge we're seeing isn't actually a necessary surge. It's the result of. Uh, it's raging amongst unvaccinated people. Uh, we understand this is America and that everybody has a choice, but there are other folks as well. There's hospital workers and others who are really struggling right now. So please reconsider your vaccination decision. Please talk to a trusted healthcare provider. Please think about getting vaccinated and get vaccinated. Next, and last slide, just a reminder, this virus is changing. Um, get tested if you've been exposed. And if you have COVID-19, don't forget the monoclonal antibody treatment. We'd really like to see more people getting it because it keeps people out of hospitals. Our case counts are still way, way too high. And so keep those hands clean. Don't cough into your hands. Wear your mask indoors. Remember, masking is required outside your home to keep your distance from other people. 
Uh, don't forget preventive health care and, and don't forget that big scene. And with that, man, I'm going to invite Laura and Christine to turn their cameras back on. And I think we're open for questions. Great. Thank you to all three of you. And I see some hands going up. I also see some new names that I don't think we've had with us before. So welcome. Uh, just a quick reminder for the press corps. Uh, when I call on you, we'll, we'll put uh, three people in a row, a couple of people on deck. Uh, and when, when it's your turn, please just do identify yourself, including your outlet. Um, I also did want to offer a quick thank you to the press. Um, <clears throat> last week, we had requested that um, if you had a specific epidemiological question, you send it in in advance. And several of you did that, which enabled us to have a really rich conversation and prepare more fully with uh, Christine and, and our full epidemiology team. So that was really helpful. I appreciate that. Um, and then one final reminder. Um, last week, we had we had said that we would likely shift away from um, just going through the list once because what, what folks were understandably tending to do was cluster four or five questions, sometimes unrelated, into, into one. And it was a little difficult for our principals to follow sometimes. So I think what we'll do this week is uh, please just do ask one question when you're called upon. Um, but we will go through the list uh, more than once if we need to, to ensure that all the questions get covered today. Uh, so... With all of that, um, thanks very much. Uh, our first three questioners will be Matt Grubbs, Julia Goldberg, and Stella Sun. Uh, Matt, you should be unmuted. Great, thanks Matt, and uh, thanks everyone else. Um, I was wondering if you have uh, a number for the number of medical workers subject to the vaccine mandate who have quit or been fired or furloughed um, since that mandate went into effect. There are a lot of people wondering, and we've heard four or five percent, but I haven't seen any actual numbers. Thanks. Well, that's a great question. And I just asked that same question uh, of our hospital group on Tuesday. Uh, they said that they had heard reports of people quitting. And uh, so I said, can you give me some numbers? And Mike Ciccarelli from UMM said, yeah, we asked for some numbers because we knew you would ask us for numbers. And so we don't have those numbers yet. I do have one set of numbers that I think is revealing and interesting. It's from Unity Point, which is a system in the Midwest. I know they're in Iowa and Illinois and one other state. They have 30,000 employees. They instituted the vaccine mandate in May of uh, this year, uh, 2021, and only 150 people left or quit as a result of that, which is one half of 1%. So I think it's the tendency to focus on this small group of people. I know in our conversation with the hospitals on Tuesday, they said there was a mad rush on the very last day of people who realized they wouldn't you know, actually be able to, to work again the next day. And so, but we don't have the numbers yet. We have asked for them and uh, we, we are starting to collect actually, Matt, the, the data from every hospital of uh, total uh, employees, fully vaccinated employees, partially vaccinated employees, uh, exemption employees, and unvaccinated employees. And so hopefully we'll have some preliminary data on that uh, next week. It, it wouldn't, might not be a bad idea to actually collect people who've resigned as a result of the mandate as well. And so uh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. So I will add that to the list. Thanks. Thank you so much. Next, we'll turn to Julia Goldberg, followed by Stella Sun, and then Dan Boyd. Julia, you are unmuted. 
Thank you. Uh, this is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Um, I guess I wanted to follow on my question about the um, cases within the poverty census tracts, which Dr. Space, you had shown a lot during the beginning part of the pandemic, both cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so when Dr. Petahon shared last week or the week before the high rates of vaccination in the areas with high social vulnerability index, I wanted to see if that indicated that there had been a drop then um, in the high in the high poverty census tracts. I don't know what the overlap is between uh-huh. the two criteria, but I assume there's a lot. The health and social indicators report looks to me as though cases by poverty level started dropping a little bit at the start of August, but there's no date dated um, for poverty census tracts for hospitalizations and deaths. So the, my overall, my question is just, is in fact that having that effect where there's fewer cases, fewer hospitalizations, fewer deaths in areas with high, that um, in the poverty census tracts as a result of that work um, for vaccination? Hopefully that makes sense. I have another question, but I guess I'll get back in line. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to start, Julia, because I, I, I read your question, but I think after as you explained it, I understand understood it better. So I think you're referring to this report about socioeconomic status. And it, I'm doing the math in my head, but this is about, uh, so this is census tracts grouped by poverty rate. And on the right, you've got census tracts where 40% or more of the people are living in poverty and less than 5% here on the left. And We've been following this ratio from the very beginning, which uh, uh, you can see today is a little bit more than two to one. I'm guessing it's maybe 2.1 to one or something like that uh, here to here. And uh, But if you remember like in March and April, when this first was reported, this peaked at a 10 to one ratio. And I think a part of what actually happened uh, is that, you know, of course, there are more infections over time, but the higher income census tracts caught up a little bit. But we're still seeing that hospitalization and, and death rate, at least nationally, at about two and a half times uh, the rate in a, in a high poverty census tract than in a low poverty census tract. And Christine, I don't, is that, I'm not sure if that's something we track and trend or not. Yeah, we do. So again, to your question, Julia, the black line on the bottom, and these go pretty much by census tract, is high income. And the, and I'm not very good with colors, but the green line up here is low income. And over time, you can see, you know, in the best of times, the ratio gets pretty tight and they're very similar. And in the worst of times during the peaks, there's a much wider spread. And some of this we've talked about before can have to do with people's ability to stay at home. If you're an essential worker with a lower income, you may be in this, uh, uh, you know, live in a lower income area. You have to do your work. You have to come in contact with more people. So I don't know if you have anything else you want to share, Laura, about it. But um, I do know that we're we're tracking. We've had success with the vaccination. Um, but I don't know if there's anything else either Laura, you or Christine want to add. Laura, you're on mute. Add that our work isn't done yet, right? There's still a lot of people we want to vaccinate in high social vulnerable zones and also with racial, ethnic, 
equity issues as well. But I think it's a complex problem because I don't think we can say just because you're vaccinated, you may, you know, um, you know, just because you're vaccinated, like how that relates to hospitalization and death, you're going to be less likely to get hospitalized or die if you get vaccinated. But I think, you know, um, we there's a lot of distrust, right? and concerns in areas of high social vulnerability. So I think it's up to us to keep on working to answer people's, people's questions so that we can get more and more people and reduce those health disparities. So I, I, I think you're right um, in the sense that we are improving and we have more vaccinated people in social vulnerable areas, but there's still a lot of people to go. So yeah. we, we wanna keep on working on that and our team is actively working for that. Great, thanks to you both. And next we'll turn to Stella Sun, followed by Dan Boyd, followed by Jackie Kent. Stella, you should be unmuted. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for hosting this. Um, and thanks so much for sending the breakthrough case data, which is what my question involves. So just taking a look at the data it appears since February, there have been 6,000 breakthrough cases total. And in the last four weeks, if I'm reading the data right, it appears that 3,500 of those happened during the month of August, so last month. Uh, but it looks like with more than a million New Mexicans who are fully vaxxed, the breakthrough cases are very rare. I'm hoping you guys could address the likelihood of becoming a breakthrough COVID-19 case if you are fully vaxxed. Thank you. Christine, do you want to start? I can I can bring up the, your report if you like. Yeah, sure. You're you're quicker at that than I am. Yeah, I, I just want to say I think you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, the the rate of of uh, uh, for a vaccine breakthrough case is very very low. I don't have the rate in in my head. We could share that, um, but it's it's extremely low. I think that our report does, I think you just mentioned it, that the report does show that there has been an increase in the number of vaccine breakthrough cases seen over time. So we're seeing more of these vaccine breakthrough infections uh, during this current surge. And this is this is a, a complex issue. It's it, it appears that it's most likely related to the fact that Delta is extremely, extremely uh, infectious and um, community levels of, of viral transmission are very high. Um, it's also uh, not clear if there's, um, you know, mixed into that group or people that didn't have a great response to the primary uh, vaccine series. Um, and this is uh, similar data was used to um, recommend the third dose um, for the Pfizer uh, vaccine, because I think there have been some some um, other uh, studies that have demonstrated. So outside of surveillance data, um, we've seen that a good number of these vaccine breakthrough cases um, could in fact be folks who are immunocompromised. So they really didn't respond well to the primary series. So that's why we, we are, are trying to roll that out as, as um, you know, uh, vigorously as we can uh, to get those folks in that, that qualify for this third dose uh, to come out and get it. 
The other thing I wanna mention, which you don't see in our report, but we're trying to triangulate this with other data is that um, there is evidence that a large proportion of these vaccine breakthrough cases are, are really mild. Um, so I think the take home message is uh, the vaccines uh, do remain highly effective at preventing serious outcomes. So highly effective at preventing hospitalization and death. Let me pause there, see if Secretary Screes wants to add more. Yeah, Stella, hi. Um, I, I think I'm really intrigued by this part here, which we're not supposed to talk about, right, Christine? We're not supposed to talk about what happens in the gray area because we don't have complete data. But, you know, we saw this, we were worried about it, but it doesn't make sense to me that there would be a difference in reporting and in, uh, you know, in vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. So uh, this, the lower this one goes, the higher this one goes, because they both add up to 100%. But this gets you back up to uh, a 20 to one, you know, or 19 to one chance of getting COVID if you're unvaccinated versus vaccinated. So we debate this and try to figure out what it means in the next couple of weeks, this gray bar will move over and we'll be able to talk more about what's going on there. But if you know you're worried about a, a in, in vaccine breakthrough infections, there's a ton of stuff you can do. Wear your mask, you know, <laughs> keep your distance, avoid indoor uh, settings that are high risk or where other people have their masks off. You know, I've been in a couple indoor settings and People, you know, my motto is when people start taking their masks off, I just take off. I just leave because it's just not safe. And so uh, we can all still protect ourselves. We can't always be responsible for whether other people protect themselves. Presbyterian did a survey that this is not earth shaking, but showed the people who were determined not to get the vaccine were also, you know, determined not to wear masks. And so there's a pretty high correlation between not being vaccinated and not wearing masks. And both of those, unfortunately, even though they are personal freedoms, uh, are high-risk behaviors right now. And so uh, I think there's still a lot we can do to prevent breakthrough infections. But, you know, really, it's the same stuff we were saying back in March of 2020. And, and interestingly, it's the same stuff they were saying back in 1918, you know, wear a mask, keep your hands clean, uh, keep your distance from other people uh, during that big pandemic for influenza. Thank you, everyone. Okay, next we'll turn to Dan Boyd, followed by Jackie Kent, followed by Vincent Rodriguez. Dan, you are unmuted. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, Dan Boyd with The Journal. Uh, thanks as always for the opportunity. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, herd immunity, which is, you know, obviously an issue that's come up over the last year and countries have taken different approaches to it. I uh, wanted to get your your thoughts about with the increased vaccination rates here in New Mexico and the number of recent cases we've seen, whether we might be approaching herd immunity or or if that's still uh, likely to be elusive, you know, given the different variations of the virus and things like that. Thanks. Yeah, I'll say a little bit, but then Christine will say most of it. And, uh, you know, we spent like, I think, you know, right when the vaccine came out, we had this spreadsheet to calculate 
what percent of people are partially vaccinated and fully vaccinated and had COVID and deduplicating the vaccine people from the COVID infection people and calculating these percents. But in the in the midst of our enthusiasm, I think the national sort of scientific view on the concept of herd immunity disappeared. And probably most people feel like uh, <clears throat> COVID isn't the sort of thing that there's a certain vaccination rate, like 70%, where it just dies out. And particularly when the whole world isn't vaccinated and people travel, it's kind of a challenge. But uh, uh, we do have our lead epidemiologist on here. And feel free to correct me if anything I said so far, uh, Christine, was wrong. No, I, I don't think you said anything wrong. I, I, I think it's a really uh, complex topic. And I think uh, what you said is accurate, that we're not really sure that there is a sort of magical number that we can reach and where you know life is going to return to normal. Um, and I think what Secretary Scrace said was really important that uh, this is a global pandemic, and New Mexico is not an island. Um, we're part of the United States, and we're part of this, this global community that is really, really well connected by air travel, uh, sea, land, you know, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that we... I don't think that there is a specific number that I can quote, and I think that we're, we will be dealing with this uh, for a while, uh, but the most important thing is that we have now, uh, unlike uh, what was uh, happening you know, a short while ago, we now have uh, a really highly effective uh, countermeasure uh, to fight this pandemic, and that is uh, vaccination. Um, so I, I don't have a specific number. That's why every week we're making a plea that every single eligible person please seek out a, a vaccine. Um, our, our healthcare system is being extremely strained right now. Uh, it's just heartbreaking to see what's happening, um, which is so very. It's, we're at a very different point in time now that we have these. Uh, we have this effective tool in our tool belt, uh, so we want to use it. Uh, let me pause there. I'm not sure if I answered your question exactly, so let me know if I didn't. Okay. Well. Uh, we can always circle back to Dan as well, Dan, unless you want to pipe in now. Uh, but I think otherwise we'll turn to Jackie Kent, uh, followed by, uh, oops, I, sorry, I think we may have, sorry, I, I, um, yeah, Jackie Kent, Vincent Rodriguez, and then Brit, uh, Brittany Costello. Jackie, go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you all for your time. My question is about increased COVID testing or more people getting tested, in addition to Dr. Scrace's earlier point that you suggest vault and curative tests for people just getting surveillance testing maybe once a week, is the state looking at other solutions for people finding it almost impossible to get a same-day COVID test and even lower those turnaround times? Uh, we're hearing that it's difficult for many families who can't get childcare or take days off work. Um, what are your solutions? Can our state labs do more testing? Can the state provide more testing sites? What do you recommend? Thank you. Yeah, I'll start with that one because I'm on testing today. I, 
I, I was going to put this slide in um, when we showed to the governor yesterday, but this is uh, just, and hopefully you can see this graph, but it's, oh no, you can't yet, just a second. Now you can see the graph, yeah. This is just testing back way back to June, and you can see we've ramped up really, really nicely. You know, in the past uh, week or so, we had a low of uh, almost 11,000 tests a day, a high of 20. Uh, I think that that was part of the reason that there's still places with open spots along the way. I think the more that folks can uh, use for surveillance testing, some of the mail-in options, curative involved, that frees up uh, some of the sites uh, online. Uh, also, please use the website. And uh, we're happy to help people who don't have a computer, who don't have a phone, but we don't think we're at our testing capacity uh, in our in the state lab. And so the Tricor um, still has more capacity to do tests. So we're doing what's coming in. We just need, as you saw, more kids in particular to get tested. And then of course, any adult with symptoms or who's contacted someone or has reason uh, to be concerned that they may have uh, COVID vaccinated or not. So I think we're responding pretty well. And I think uh, there, were, there are people and I hear about them too, um, that say, hey, how do I get tested or I can't get tested? And I just talk on the phone with them, like my friends and go online and show them how to do it. So. For the most part, there may be some limits or a day wait, but for the most part, we think we're keeping up. Thank you. Great, next we'll turn to Vincent Rodriguez, followed by Brittany Costello. And then I may just ask, um, uh, I think we'll probably turn back to Julia Goldberg at that point, because I think she was looking to ask a second round of questions. And if others wanna get in line after that, then you're welcome to raise your hand again. So Vincent? please feel free to ask your question. Hi, um, this is actually Maggie from KUT. I am calling on Vincent's line. I'm going to follow the question about testing. I just went to the site that Dr. Scrace mentioned and I could not find a test. Um, Presbyterian just says no appointments available at this time. DOH says none till Friday. First Nations is only testing on Tuesday and Thursday. Next Care, um, doesn't even have a place to book a test. Passport will get me in tomorrow. CVS, nothing. I went to Monday, still nothing. And I finally just stopped. I know that we have an influx of testing with kids being back in school. It's a lot of people that are unvaccinated being tested once a week. But I do think that even though I hear Dr. Sprace is saying there are tests, we see people looking for them and unable to find them. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had, I think one of the places the state really excelled was that we had so much testing. And now that really doesn't seem to be the case. And I'm wondering if the state is looking at, you know, maybe even with this information, figuring out a way to pay and test the way that they did at the beginning of the pandemic so that we can, you know, fill the need that is so clearly there. Mandating the mask. I'm not sure. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Someone needs to mute. Uh, online and unmuted. Uh, could everyone just mute themselves unless you're Maggie? Okay, thanks. Yeah, Jackie, I, I, I understand uh, what you're saying. I think we are doing the best we can. The National Guard still working with us on testing. We've extended their time as well. I think the key to what you said was even though you listed off nine places that you can't get tested, you can get tested tomorrow at one of them 
And that's sort of the point is uh, you listed one where you were able to get tested. And so we're not trying to create a situation where there's a hundred openings every day at every location, you know, we're, we're still using our public health workers to get vaccinations and do a lot of other good work here. And so uh, we are uh, trying to keep up, but uh, again, if people have trouble getting a test, they're welcome to call uh, the DOH testing line. It's, it's available online and, and we can walk you through that process. But uh, I don't know how far that test was. And then if you, you know, go to vault, uh, you could you could get a test as well. Remember, you have to test and then stay quarantined until you have the test results back. So that might be a little bit longer, but um, under, I understand that it may not be as convenient. Uh, we're putting every resource that we have uh, to the testing. And in your case, when you did the search, you were able to, uh, to uh, find a, a test tomorrow. Thank you, Dr. Screece. Next, we'll turn to Brittany Costello. And then I'm actually gonna ask Julia to wait just a moment because we've got Morgan Lee who has not asked a question yet. So we'll go to Brittany, then Morgan, and then I believe back into our second round uh, for folks who've already asked questions. So Brittany, please feel free to ask your question. Hi, thank you guys so much for your time as always. Um, I wanted to, I know we've talked about this before, but as time goes on, I wanted to just bring it back up. Um, I'm wondering about the immune response from the vaccine. Again, how how long does that last as we uh, go on in this pandemic? I know initially we were hearing the six to eight month time frame. Um, we're, it seems like we're getting kind of close for maybe some of those people who were um, eager to get the, the shot um, early on. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, I'll start and, and Christine will follow up because I know she's been on the CDC calls where they've discussed this. Uh, I think that I really still think the answer is we don't know for sure. We do see a slight decline in circulating antibodies in the blood that comes down over time. And those were some of the studies that started this idea of giving everybody a uh now it's called a booster, right? A booster vaccine or a third dose after uh, after the initial, uh, you know, some people say six months after the initial vaccine. Some people say eight months. If it's eight months, I'll be due for um, my booster in another two weeks. Uh, but I think uh, there's a big debate going on about this and whether the the breakthrough cases and vaccinated people are really because immunity is declining somewhat, or are they because this Delta variant is so vicious and spreads to so many people? So Christine, and then I, I don't know, Laura, you might have a comment on this as well. So uh, I don't think I have any uh, anything um, major to add to this that I, I think that uh, as Secretary Scrace said that the uh, we just don't know yet. And so I, I think that this is being uh, evaluated on an ongoing basis. Um, I, I did attend a, a recent call, um, uh, one of the, the White House uh, press briefings, um, where there was a discussion about what, what do we what do we know from the immunological data? And I mean, we know that antibody levels decline over time. Um, that's that's a, a, a fact that that I think we all agree with. 
we, we believe that higher levels of antibody may be required to fully protect against those vaccine breakthrough cases we're seeing with Delta. It's, it's not clear. Again, it's not really clear. Um, and we also know that when you give a, a booster of a, a messenger RNA um, immunization, you give a third dose, it increases antibody titers by at least tenfold. Um, so this is what this this is the, the the data that folks are looking at, which is supporting this idea that a third um, messenger RNA immunization um, is going to be needed to increase the level of protection. Again, exactly what time point uh, is that um, going to be most beneficial is not clear. So that's why you know the White House held this briefing to say, hey, let's start planning because the logistics are complicated. Let's start planning. Uh, because as you already mentioned, um, there is some indications that at about that eight month time point after uh, completion of a vaccination series, that might be when we're going to get uh, uh, the most bang for the buck or that that's going to be where we're, we're going to want to offer that. But it's really uh, not fully clear. So there will be an independent independent evaluation by FDA and then uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices or the ACIP um, also uh, has to meet, discuss, uh, look at all of the data comprehensively and provide a clear recommendation on the exact uh, timing uh, of when should that uh, um, booster dose, if it is offered, what's the right timing for it? And I wish I had a more concrete answer, but we are literally uh, learning as uh, as we, we go along through this pandemic. And uh, Dr. Panahone, uh, did I leave room for you? Do you want to add anything? I think the only thing I want to add is that our team is preparing for it to see what hospitals, what clinics, what other people can help out with this effort. Um, and just another appeal to all the providers, like any providers who want to become a vaccine provider, this is the time to do it because it'd be so great if you guys could vaccinate your own patients. And I think that's really what a lot of patients want is like they trust their provider. They'd love to, you know, get a vaccine from their provider. So if you are, um, we have TakeCareNewMexico.org. You just sign up and uh, we're trying to make it easier for you guys to get on board. So just a little appeal there. Yeah. And I have one last appeal too to everyone. And that is, it is safe, as Laura said, to get uh, the COVID vaccine with other vaccines. And that will include this fall's flu shot. And so we're hoping to take advantage of uh, fall flu shot clinics that are given all over the state by DOH, by providers, uh, to move the COVID booster vaccine into those clinics as much as we can as well. So we stand by, we're reaching out to providers if you're hearing this and would like to have someone come to your office and we can train you to do what you need to do. It's really not that hard to administer the vaccines and uh, we'll be happy to work with you to set that up. But I think for me, I'm hoping that I can get my, you know, flu shot. And if this booster does prove to be the thing that will be effective, that I can get them both at once in my provider office. And I know people say, you know, they have, I'm having trouble just getting in to see my primary care doctor, but this, this would allow you in, in a flu shot clinic at their office to get, you know, the, uh, the flu shot and the COVID shot without having to have an official appointment. They, a lot of the folks 
around the state just to get both at the same time. So we're hoping that that will really help us out in this next round. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Okay, next we'll turn to Morgan Lee, followed then by Julia Goldberg, followed, I believe, by Matt Grubbs. It looks like your hand's up for a second time. Uh, Morgan, you are free to ask your question. Uh, hi, thanks for this opportunity. Uh, I wondered if Dr. Scraze, if you could, and I put this up in the chat, if you could comment on uh, whether you're confident that you're getting um, a, a good assessment of community spread in the schools given um, some low levels of surveillance testing. Um, and the only additional question was just um, that equation you painted in the southeast of the state with 45% um, adult um, vaccination rate. Uh, I just guess, I mean, what's the end game? Where How do you see things playing out down there? Just, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna start with the Southeast um, first because I texted the Secretary of uh, Public Education uh, with your question and uh, took a screenshot of the chat there and I haven't heard back from him, but I'm guessing I might not. Uh, but uh, on the Southeast, we are starting to see that same deceleration in the Southeast that we're seeing statewide. And so we're really, really hoping that uh, we see that curve begin to flatten soon. I know they've done a great job down there uh, giving monoclonal antibody treatment to people who are positive with symptoms and risk factors. Uh, again, uh, being over the age of 64, being obese or one of the high risk conditions for COVID. And so they're calling because they're running out of IV tubing and things like that and we're sending them more supplies. So seems like they're doing a good job. I think, I think in the end though, the pandemic will continue amongst the unvaccinated for a long time. And I don't know exactly how long that's gonna be, but I expect to see us having this very, very steady flow of cases. You know, I'm, I got my fingers crossed here right now. I wanna say 50 to 75 a day. That'd be heaven for all of us uh, who've been working on the pandemic for a really long period of time, kind of like we were in June. And uh, but I think we'll continue to see that. And as new variants come through, I think uh, that there'll be some fairly, uh, you know, again, new mini pandemics among the uh, uh, among the, uh, you know, unvaccinated as well. On the school testing, uh, it's a really good question. I don't know the exact answer. One of the guys, uh, our chief medical officer at DOH, Tom Massaro, just uh, finalized a contract with a testing vendor that specifically specializes in schools. They're gonna go to the schools. They're gonna do this testing. They start next week and uh, we'll get uh, more information on that. Laura, unless you know uh, anything more, I haven't talked to Tom in a couple of days. I did see some emails about it and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll turn over to you because I see you nodding your head, which is good. Oh, no, I, I was just nodding my head to say, yeah, they're going to start next week. And so that'll be available to all schools and it's free as part of the funding that we're getting from the CDC to help testing the schools. So I think that'll also relieve some of the burden on the other testing sites and um, will allow us to do more testing of the school kids. Yeah, but Morgan is right from a mathematical point of view. When you see that testing positivity go up in any group at all, it it means 
uh, that we need to do more testing. We we may be missing cases. And so I think your your spin on that is exactly right. Like in order to be confident that we're really knowing what's going on in schools, we do need uh, more testing. And, And I think that this also remember, like no kids should be in school if they have symptoms, right? You parents out there, you're all keeping your kids home no matter what, right? Runny nose, new runny nose, you're keeping your kid home. Belly ache, you're keeping your kid home. You need to do that. And so I think there's a big role for parents in this as well, in doing the testing right away. And a lot of these cases in kids last two or three days, they, their symptoms get better. They can go, and if you send them right back to school, they may still be infectious for a couple of days more. And so uh, we really want to make sure we're being careful about that and testing more. I know, Christine, anything to add to that on the run out? Well, I think you just added the point <laughs> that I wanted to add is that, um, you know, there's a difference between surveillance testing or screening, right? These are asymptomatic um, individuals um, that we hope to pick up early. But if, if someone has symptoms, that's diagnostic testing. And that's, uh, you know, we should be seeking a test at, 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 in any uh, uh, available location that we can. But really the critical message Secretary Scrace just said, if, if a child is symptomatic, um, the child should 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 not be coming to school. Um, of course, we want to confirm what that what that illness is, and we want to uh, find out if this is COVID-19. But if, if a child has symptoms or a teacher has symptoms, um, uh, similar to the, the publication um, of the outbreak investigation that I shared from Marin, California, uh, we're all in this together. People need to people need to stay home. Um, the other the other thing I wanted to add is um, the FDA has authorized um, or approved over-the-counter COVID-19 tests. So, of course, this isn't ideal because this means you have to go and purchase purchase a test. Um, But these are antigen tests. Uh, they, uh, I hope that they're available at pharmacies. I haven't, I haven't gone in and, and assessed the stock myself, uh, but I do just want to mention that if a child is symptomatic and, and you, you do an over-the-counter uh, test, um, we're going to consider that uh, symptomatic child positive. If it comes out positive on that test, we're going to consider that. Um, we want the parent to consider that as uh, highly likely as to be COVID-19, and we want that that child to stay at home. We would love to see that 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 uh, over the counter test is confirmed uh, within, say, a two-day period by a PCR test or a lab-based test. That's what we're advising. But there is this is another tool that 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 is available. So I just want to mention um, that that these are approved and should be available um, at pharmacies. And I did actually, in late breaking news, uh, Kurt Steinhaus, our PED secretary, did just text me back here. You, I guess you can't read it, but it says. Most schools are meeting state goals for staff surveillance testing. School districts not meeting the goals are receiving technical assistance and additional options for testing. Weekly warnings and reminders are sent as well. So uh, they're on it. I do think the new uh, testing vendor will help. And I think the thing to get back to the couple people who uh, brought up the issue about access to testing, 
we have really dramatically increased testing recommendations in the state uh, recently. First, we have a huge surge of cases. We always see testing go up. And now we have employees who are unvaccinated who need weekly testing. We have more rigorous uh, regular testing in schools and congregate settings and, and commercial uh, um, <clears throat> other commercial settings. And so it, it, there is pressure there and we're doing, we're working as fast as we can. Again, the, to the extent that surveillance testing you can do at home, you know, kind of by UPS, it's still free. Um, we really encourage that if you're one of those people who needs a weekly test, although uh, you could also get vaccinated and avoid that weekly test. And so um, we're just, we sort of, it's like the funnel. There's an awful lot of testing coming through this spot and we are doing everything we can to widen it, including offloading or re-prioritizing uh, surveillance testing to other vendors, like we just talked about with schools. So I didn't mean to minimize that since people have a, of some frustration out there getting the test. And I'm hoping in the next week or two, we'll be able to reroute these tests in a way that will make it easier for everyone get, to get tested. Thanks everyone. I see three members of the press with their hands raised. Uh, so unless others choose to raise their hands, I think we'll, these will be our last three questions. I see Julia, Matt Grubbs and Brittany Costello. So we'll go in that order. And Julia, you are unmuted. Thanks, Matt. Um, this also is a follow-up on the testing question. I understand the state, the health department's recommendations as it relates to surveillance testing for people who are unvaccinated. I wondered if you could talk at all about what might be best practices for the increasing number of venues and events that are also requiring either proof of vaccination or proof of tests, because I'm seeing a really wide variety. We have a few venues in Santa Fe that say, if it's a rapid test, it needs to be less than six hours old and clinically verified. I haven't quite figured out what, how they came up with that number or if that number is meaningful. Um, and I'm also curious if antigen testing seems to you useful for in a non-surveillance um, capacity. I was told by a DOH tech that it is not, <laughs> um, but I haven't had anyone else tell me that. So those are hopefully clear in my question. Thanks. Yeah, I'm gonna start with uh, uh, the large event topic, and then I'm gonna let my esteemed colleagues handle the second question. You know, I was recently visiting some grandkids in San Francisco you know, N95 goggles on the plane. I always joke that I take three rolls of saran wrap and wrap my whole body, but that's not really true. Don't take my mask off. Plane travel was did seem safer than the last time, but still makes me uh, pretty nervous. And we went out to eat in San Francisco to an outdoor restaurant where, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was required to produce my vaccine record and some ID. So everybody else had theirs. Uh, uh, mine was in my briefcase. I don't usually take my briefcase to dinner. So drove back home really quickly. It was only five minutes away. Got my necessary stuff, showed my vaccine card, uh, showed my uh, ID. They were kicking people out. Uh, they were not seating people who did not uh, show that. So that was one city's way. And, I, and as you know, I'm kind of a fan of local interventions to try to control um, outbreaks. It was one city's way of doing the best they could to <clears throat> stimulate the economy, keep people in restaurants, but 
minimize risk to patrons and particularly servers who, you know, they're pretty high risk when they see so many people in a day without their masks on. You know, I think with the state fair, uh, there's been vaccine requirements put in place by the public health order, certainly only allowing vaccinated people um, into an event significantly reduces the probability of the virus jumping from one person to another person to another person. Uh, that's one way to do it. Recent testing, you know, almost anything you do that divides people into two groups, high risk and low risk, will help. You know, and if you do four things to divide people into four consecutive things, you'll end up with a pretty safe sort of event. Now, to be practical, you can't require anyone who wants to go to the state fair to not have any human contact for two weeks before they come, but that would that would really decrease the chances of spread of the virus. And so I think the answer in situations like this is to chain together things that dramatically re reduce risk. So vaccination or recent tests. Just six required hours. Mask wearing, required mask wearing on the part of everybody at all events, at all times. And like in those classrooms where the teacher's taking their mask off to meet, read, like don't let that happen, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think we know, we don't have good research data to show what the magic combination is, but I think the more of those things you do all at one time, six foot distancing of people at a concert, for example, the more you do, the more, the, the more likely you are to create a safe environment, uh, even with larger numbers of people. But Dr. Space, would a rapid test within a six within six hours be of any more use than a rapid test within twenty four hours or seventy two hours? Yeah, I mean, in theory, particularly with rapid tests, you know, they've shown that like if you're negative on the first day, like if you take a thousand people who have COVID and you give them all a rapid test, you know, a certain percent of them will be positive. I don't know the numbers on this. Maybe Christine or Laura can fill in. A certain percent will be positive on the first day, but the next day, uh, the people who are negative, a, a lot higher percent will be positive, and the next day, a lot higher. Six hours seems like it could strain some level of practicality, although events that are serious about that could set up a booth and, and simply do the rapid testing there and you know have people wait until they got their results to come in. Uh, so anyway, I know Laura is a big fan of rapid testing. There's still a debate about its utility as a surveillance. There's some good data we presented a couple of weeks ago about effective use in nursing homes of, of rapid testing, even in asymptomatic people. Usually the more confined the environment, the better. But I'm gonna turn it over to Laura and then Christine for comments on either of those questions. Mute. Yeah, I am a like um, like David said. I am a fan of the rapid testing, um, primarily because you can take people out immediately who are positive, and um, it's very sensitive to um, being able to pick up if you're symptomatic. But even if you're asymptomatic, it, it's 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 really a really great test for just for those kind of events. And I love David's idea of like, hey, why don't they just set up a booth? And if they're really serious about it, test everybody. And then you can really get the people who are gonna spread, you know, taken out of the system. Uh, we did that with the homeless shelters and we had incredible response. We just limited our outbreaks by like 80% doing that. And I believe that's similar to um, long-term care facilities. So 
Um, yeah, like David said, like the more things you do to decrease your risk, the better. And I, I, I do think that um, that rapid antigen test is one of those ways to do it. And like Christine says, you can just buy them over the counter. And so if you want to be extra safe, you can test yourself. It's like $23, I think, for two tests. Um, and you can just do it at home. So, yeah. I don't know if uh, Christine This can be like point and counterpoint, Christine. Yeah, Christine can counterpoint me. But I you don't have to agree when the issue is controversial. <laughs> no, I, I would just say, Julia, I don't know where the, where the six hours comes from. I, I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know. I don't think there's any any data on that. Um, I, I do think, um, you know, test testing is another additional measure, but any sort of large capacity venue, uh, it, it, the most effective things uh, to, to stop person to person transmission is going to be, you know, uh, of course, promoting vaccination prior to the event and then uh, distancing, masking, uh, etc. I think that when you're in areas of substantial or, or, or really high levels of transmission, even doing a symptom check at the door, if it could be done, you know, very respectfully, um, uh, also would be would be quite useful. So if you know if someone has a fever or symptoms, we we don't want you to come into this this big uh, uh, crowded uh, venue. Um, so I, I think that one there is there is some evidence uh, behind that one. But I'm sorry, the six hours I I haven't heard of that. I do remember though, Christine, in that CDC report about the, uh, it might not have been in the report itself, it might have been a news story about the report. There was a performer there who was doing live performances and it did make reference to the fact that he was literally doing antigen tests on himself every six hours because he was concerned about not infecting others. And so uh, that's the only place I've seen that number. and. Uh, yeah. And I, I think the six hours, I mean, I don't know, you can choose any close number you can, but I think really it just has to do with like, it's closer, like 72 hours, it just doesn't pick it up, right? But like it, the antigen test is really good to pick up, like you have COVID right now. And so I think they're just trying to make it be as close as possible. But like, I, I if they really want to do it, just open up the little booth next to the, the venue, because that's how we would... Um, that's how we actually used to uh, work with people experiencing homelessness to get into the shelter. We would test a certain percent and we just know like, oh yeah, you're already COVID positive. We know now that whole bus is COVID positive, you know? So, I mean, not COVID, has more risk, right? So I, I think that's where the six hours come from. I think it's probably just closer to the event because that's what that test is good for, right? It's good for like identifying you close to the time you have COVID. Thank you. All right. Thanks I, very I much think everybody. to sum up, Matt, we're not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll turn to Matt Grubbs, followed by Brittany Costello. Matt, you are on mute. Thanks, Matt. And thanks for the second go round. Um, just in the interest of being expedient, I have a couple here. Um, there seems to be a persistent 9 to 10% gap between the first and second dose numbers that you're reporting. I'm wondering if you expect that to close or is there a certain level of people who are just gonna get one and call it a day? And then um, my second question is on what I believe was the second to last slide that Dr. Ross, you showed. Um, 
the narrative around um, COVID has been that it affects old people, right? Um, it, it seemed to show, if I was looking at that correctly, and maybe I wasn't, but it seemed to show that since February, kids um, age five to 17 make up a larger portion of the positive cases that you're reporting. I just wanted uh, to know if that's correct and if you could circle back and, and talk about that. Thank you. So Laura, I'll bring up my screen of the vaccine dashboard currently and I can move it around and then uh, Brianna, if you can be ready to bring up the slide that Matt just mentioned, but here's the vaccine dashboard updated today. And he's talking about the difference between these two numbers, which has actually run about 10%. <sighs> Yeah, and that's that's kind of been that way the whole time. Um, that's pretty that's pretty consistent with what what's been shown nationally too. There seems to be just like eight to ten percent of people that, for some reason, aren't going back for their second dose. And uh, we tried like a lot of different things, like incentives and different ways to get people the second dose. Explaining to people that sometimes the second dose has more side effects, you know, but it's still it's still you know doing its job. Um, but yeah, for some reason, we've seen that consistently throughout the throughout the um, pandemic. And uh, I, I would guess, you know, I, I thought something that was really interesting is is that when we tried to incentivize that second. Um, dose, we did have some increase, but not as much as we thought we would. Um, and it didn't seem to bridge that gap as much as we thought we, you know, could. So, Laura, I just have one more comment. Oh, and yeah. that is that remember, Matt, this is not a fixed point in time. So, uh, we won't know for sure what this gap will be for another four weeks, right? Because a bunch of these folks, a large number actually, got this new one dose in the last four weeks. And so, you know, I'm kind of hoping it ends up settling down at about five to 6% uh, once we get the catch up. And, you know, we have a ways to go uh, with kids here uh, and where the gap is a little bit bigger, but again, much more frequently vaccinated of late. And so, and then Laura mentioned the incentives and we did show a month over month <clears throat> increase of uh, 25% in first and second shots. Uh, in addition to giving about, I think 6,200 of the third shot, the booster, no, the third shots for people with immune deficiency. Uh, Christine, do you wanna talk about the other question? Uh, sure. So I, I don't know if you want to pull the slide up again. So yeah, I make yeah. sure I'm, I'm looking at the right slide. He said the second to last one. Okay. So just a moment here. Sorry. So I think uh, just to give some context, I think overall New Mexico has done a really good job at, at, at rolling out testing when you, you compare um, you know, look back through the the course of the pandemic. Compare our testing rates to other states. We've done we've done uh, really well when you when you uh, compare us. Um, we haven't um, tested children uh, as uh, at 
uh, as um, often uh, or at that, this as similar rates as adults. So, so burden among children, um, we believe, uh, you know, some of this burden we're we're not seeing. We're we're not testing all these kids with really mild symptoms. We we know kids are getting a virus, a, a new virus every other day, uh, in in normal uh, times. Uh, so, uh, and with COVID, we know that they can have asymptomatic or really mild disease. Um, so we, we know that just in general, um, we don't test um, pediatric age groups as much as we test uh, adults. With that being said, I think um, we could pull up the pediatric report, but I think um, pediatric age groups have made up about 15% of our overall cases. Currently, they're about 25%, if I'm remembering correctly, um, of what we're seeing now. So they are a bigger proportion. And then I think um, I think the slide might have been uh, before this one, uh, Brianna. So it was just showing, I think we pointed out that increasing uh, trend in the five to 17 year olds, which I believe you mentioned. So that was the yellow line. And just showing that that is, um, that is a larger percentage or proportion of our total cases um, and case rates are, are quite high in that age group. But if you're looking at absolute numbers, um, still the largest number of cases is in the 35 to 64 year old age group, which is the pink line, and then followed by the 18 to 34 year olds. Um, but given those high uh, case rates that we're seeing in the um, younger age group, you can see they're sort of taking up, uh, uh, we are we are they are taking up a larger proportion of the total cases over over time um and that's what we were pointing out um in that graph i think that was i think that was the slide that you were referring to yeah let me add one thing because uh matt you made another good point about we think of COVID as a disease of the elderly but if you look at that green line uh you know Go all the way back to the left, Brianna. When it first started, maybe through June of, of 2020, it was kind of a disease of the elderly, but it dropped really fast. And, I, you know, I call people 65 and older my people because I'm a geriatrician, but we've hunkered down and they're, they are taking precautions, wearing masks. They're the ones who write us notes about how we need to have a mask mandate when we don't and you know they're being they're being pretty careful and so that 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 observation that COVID was a disease of the elderly was true for a couple months but it no longer is true at all and then this summer we we saw that emergence of the 18 to 34 year olds it was actually last fall and and uh we've seen those two groups on top ever since so we should put that one away because it's a uh, now it's really uh, uh, 18 to 64-year-olds, that sort of middle, young, uh, older, older young adults and, and younger uh, middle-aged folks and, and middle-aged folks who are 70% are of the cases there, or two-thirds anyway. Thanks. Any more okay. there, Matt? Yep. One final question from Brittany Costello. Brittany, you are unmuted. 
Hi guys, thanks again. This will be super quick. Um, I just wanted to circle back to last week when you guys had mentioned the ICU waiting list. So it, according to the slides, it looked like um, as of yesterday, there, there were some beds there, but I'm just wondering, is, is that list uh, still a thing or, or are those people kind of placed? Yeah, the, the people that were on it last week are pretty much placed. I think we're in the range of 10. See, the state operates a call center. Hospitals themselves can't refuse admissions if they have open beds. They can't mean to, you know, do waiting lists, but the state operates this call center, which gives us some flexibility. And so we can actually manage all the beds in the state like it was one really, really large hospital. So we're down quite a bit. Uh, we do when we get calls, you know, we know that we're going to be able to place people later in the day. So we have a smaller list, but we don't, we're still have one patient for every ICU bed we have right now, plus a few more, but better than last week. Okay. I think that covers all of our questions. Any final words from our panelists? Go ahead, uh, Laura, Christine, and I'll, I'll close. <clears throat> Unmute, Laura. Not that, sorry. Um, sorry, my final word is really to the parents of children um, who are 12 to 17 years old to really get them vaccinated because they are, you know, the least vaccinated group and just um, they, that way we can protect them. These children still get really can get really sick from COVID. They can actually even get long term COVID. So if we have something to prevent um, them getting from sick, go ahead and get the vaccine. Get your answers question answers to your questions. Talk to your provider. Talk to people you trust, so you can get your answers question uh, <laughs> questions answered, and and really make that decision that is informed, and um, and you can feel good about vaccinating your children. So thank you so much for having us again today, and thanks to everybody here. Okay, I'll follow on that. Um, I, I just want to encourage, also encourage my fellow parents um, to opt in to surveillance testing um, that is associated with schools. My understanding is that um, this will be mandatory for unvaccinated teachers, but uh, students will be allowed to, to opt in. So I just want to really highly encourage you to consider uh, um, opting, uh, uh, opting your child in for this surveillance testing and then um, of course, seeking out a diagnostic test um, whenever um, uh, your child has symptoms. But while while there is this um, uh, uh, the period when symptoms develop and we're trying to confirm what that what that diagnosis is, that symptomatic child uh, should should stay home. It, it's just really really critical. Um, we we need everybody to do their part. Um, so that we can keep uh, transmission uh, down as low as possible at the school environment and have a much better school year uh, this year than we had last year. So thank you. Yeah, and I just wanna again, thank our media partners. Uh, the, the level of sophistication of the questions keeps going up every week. You're really keeping us on our toes and asking about correlations between page seven of one epidemiology report and page three of another and 
So these are really great questions. Uh, you know, when I think about the first couple of weeks we did these press conferences and I was really wanting to make sure I spelled COVID correctly to where we are today, uh, the kind of data we have, the ability to track it and you all just challenging us every week to do more. And that really makes the job satisfying it, over what's been a really, really long haul. Uh, I think you might remember I predicted this might be over on September 30th of this year. So we only have 29 days uh, left for that. But I would, I would just echo my colleagues today, uh, get tested, you know, be careful, uh, wear your mask, keep your hands clean. Uh, and above all, really, if you're still not convinced about getting vaccinated after the excellent data Laura showed today about dispelling these myths and this pandemic we're seeing in the state, which is really only for the most part amongst unvaccinated people, at least from the hospital perspective, it's almost almost exclusively unvaccinated people. Please have one more discussion with your trusted healthcare provider. Last, if you get a positive COVID test, you're over 64, uh, significantly overweight, or have one of those risk factors for um, more serious COVID disease that could put you in the hospital, please seek out monoclonal antibody treatment right away. The sooner you can get it, the better positive tests and symptoms and then risk factors uh, means you should be treated. So with that, I think we're gonna thank you all and probably we'll see you again next week. Uh, I'm kind of hoping we can go back at some point to every two weeks, but as you saw this week, we've had plenty to talk about and filled up almost two hours. So we'll keep up the frequency uh, according to the data and your interest uh, and your questions. And with that, Matt, I'll send it back to you one last time. Thanks very much. Yep, we'll be back with everyone uh, with an advisory next Tuesday, inviting you to the Wednesday press conference. In the meantime, we're here to answer your inquiries all week long. David Morgan is your primary point of contact, but you've got a whole DOH comms team to support him as well. So thanks, everybody, and we'll see you very soon.